It's the 4th of July, 1974, King's Cross, Sydney. Heiress Juanita Nielsen attends a meeting to discuss advertising for the Carousel Club in a newspaper called Now. She's never seen again and her body is never found. Was it her opposition to development in the area or something else she was about to expose? I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So, who was Juanita Nielsen? Well, there used to be a Mark Foy's department store. It was first started by Francis and Mark Foy, and they named it after their father, Mark. It started trading in 1885 in Oxford Street, Sydney. In 1909, they opened the impressive Liverpool Street store called The Piazza. It was three storeys, two floors plus a basement, with a turreted mansard roof taking up a whole city block. According to Wikipedia, it was modelled on the Le Bon Marché department store in Paris. Remarkably, both buildings still exist in all their glory. But ironically, as you will come to see, the Liverpool Mark Foy's has now been converted into a courthouse known as the Downing Centre, although the tilework and facade have been restored as it was when it was the department store. So, Juanita was born Juanita Smith to her parents Neil Smith and Vilma Smith at New Lambton, New South Wales, the 22nd of April, 1937. Neil was an English-born heir to the Mark Foy's retail fortune, via his parents John Smith and his wife Kathleen Foy, who was sister to Mark and Francis Foy, the founder of the Mark Foy's empire. Juanita went to Ravenswood School for Girls at Gordon, Sydney, which at the time was an elite Methodist ladies' college. She would work at Mark Foy's from 1953 until 1959, when she decided to travel overseas. In 1962, she married to Jorgen Nielsen, a Danish seaman in Kobe, Japan. Her marriage ended after a few years and she returned to Sydney in 1965. She returned to work at Mark Foy's for about five years. She would buy a terrace house at 202 Victoria Street Potts Point in 1968. Soon she acquired a small local paper called Now, which she had originally worked on with the Reverend Ted Knoffs of the Wayside Chapel. Initially, the paper would run featured stories about local restaurants, bars and arts in her neighbourhood. She would write what we now term advertorials for paid advertisers and in 1971 she stated that Now is not and has never been a crusading newspaper. In the next couple of years, this would begin to change. In 1972, Frank Tiemann, who made his fortune in lingerie, sold off his Osti lingerie business to Dunlop and got into property. 
He had a plan to develop the Victoria Street location by knocking down the old 19th century terrace houses and build a modern $40 million apartment complex consisting of three high-rise blocks across the site. Now, Victoria Street was built along a steep sandstone escarpment east of the city centre, with its terrace houses looking over the city, harbour and the domain, which is a 34 hectares or 84 acres of open space that adjoins the Royal Botanic Gardens. The site had been compared to Montmartre in Paris. It was a tight little community made up of the wealthy and working class families. It had little shops, milk bars and cafes where everyone knew everyone. Also in the area, just up from Victoria Street, was Darlinghurst Road, King's Cross. This was, and still is to some extent, the red-like district of Sydney, fondly known as the Golden Mile. Abe Saffron, a.k.a. the King of the Cross, or Mr Sin, a local underworld identity, owned the Pink Panther Strip Club, an upstairs brothel, the Girls' Night Club and the Carousel Club, all of which drew those out for a late night or good time. He would bribe corrupt officials to protect his gambling, nightclub and prostitution businesses. The Carousel Night Club was run by Jim, the boss, Anderson, and the night manager was Eddie Trigg. Both of these characters will come into the story a little bit later. Anyway... To go ahead with his plans to redevelop the Victoria Street precinct, Frank Tiemann would need to evict the residents so he could demolish the existing buildings. Although some people were happy to move out, others were not, and the local community campaigned against the development. Delays in the $40 million development was costing a reported $3,000 a day, and in 1970s dollars, that was a lot of money about $26,000 a day in today's terms. So it's March 1970, and Frank Tiemann has started to purchase buildings along Victoria Street. His initial application to build three 45-storey towers was approved by the Sydney City Council, but rejected by the State Planning Authority, stating that it was one of the worst cases of visual pollution it had ever seen. Frank amended the application to a more moderate 20-storey tower set on a three-storey podium with six-storey car park. This was approved by April 1973. Then Tiemann hired a guy called Fred Fletcher to move everybody out ASAP. And by ASAP, he meant within the week. So residents and tenants were hounded by real estate agents to get out receiving termination letters that told them to leave within days. About three to four hundred of them did. Some got a little compensation if they initially refused, and some were moved into new accommodation, which was dark and dingy. It didn't matter if they were old or not. They were being forced to leave. Of those that resisted leaving, they were to be subject to intimidation, violence and vandalism. They would be lied to in respect to the building being condemned or that it was to have its power and water cut off. Agents would refuse to take rent and at night Tiemann's thugs would kick in doors, remove stained glass windows and fencing 
and even throw bricks through windows. Arthur King, who lived at 97A Victoria Street, will call a meeting at the front of his place on April the 8th, 1973. About 40 people attended and they formed the Victoria Street Residence Action Group. They decided to meet in a few days' time and approached the New South Wales Builders' Labours Federation for assistance. The New South Wales Builders' Labours Federation had recently involved themselves in environmental issues, helping to protect working-class neighbourhoods from environmentally destructive projects. Under the leadership of Jack Monday, he would ban union members from working on these projects, calling them green bans rather than black bans. So Arthur went to see the New South Wales BLF about a green ban and they quickly banned all demolition and construction work in the street. Arthur was becoming a target and the corrupt New South Wales police of the time were in Tiemann's pocket. On the 11th of April, just before the second meeting of the action group, two coppers came to his door and told him to come downtown as he had a warrant for unpaid maintenance. This was odd as he'd never been married. The police took him to Darlinghurst Station, but left him in the car as they went inside. After a while, they came back and drove him home. This was a show that Tiemann had not only thugs on his side, but the police as well. As further violence and intimidation went on, the police ignored concerns of the residents. On the April 11 meeting, there were now more than 100 people present they decided to start overnight patrols to prevent vandalism and intimidation from Tiemann's thugs. On Friday the 13th, Arthur had a few friends over for drinks and when they left before midnight to join the patrol, Arthur went to bed. He was woken up at about 4.30am by one of the thugs at his bed. He jumped up and tried to chase the guy away, but two other thugs grabbed him, told him to get dressed blindfolded him and then put him in a car. Arthur tried to scream, but a knife to his throat quickly silenced him. His friends reported him missing, but after a few days he turned up. He quickly packed his shit and moved out. He'd been told by the thugs not to tell anyone about what had happened and he wouldn't be harmed. He would tell police he'd just gone fishing. Another incident of note was on April 30 when a seaman, Mick Fowler, arrived home from being at sea to find he and his mum had been evicted. There was one of Tiemann's thugs and a couple of cops out the front of his house. He told them that he was the legal tenant, he lived there and that the place had been broken into and all his stuff was left out the front. The thug told the police that he represented the owner and asked the police to arrest Mick, which they did. On May the 3rd, Mick came back with about 50 BLF guys and members of the Siemens Union, throwing out Tiemann's thugs and security guards. At the same time, the National Trust officially classified the street for reasons including its beauty and historical association with major writers and artists, the first time a whole street had been classified. Another proposal was put forward by Tiemann for an even more moderate development, 
this time including as much low-income housing and preservation of the heritage of the area as possible. Then in moved the squatters. This just slowed things down further for Tiemann. There was constant harassment of remaining residents and squatters, but they were able to hold the developers at bay. On Thursday, the 6th of September, fire would break out in one of the terraces, killing a young girl. Her brother was able to escape and told police of a young guy that had visited earlier but left shortly before the fire broke out. Things were now getting serious. One of the squatters, John Cox, had been charged with trespassing. He would be convicted but won the appeal and his conviction dismissed. It was December 1973 and it was now legal to squat on Victoria Street. The squatters erected barricades to help fend off the developers and their thugs. On the morning of the 3rd of January 1974, police gathered at Darlow Police Station. They would assemble at each end of Victoria Street and let Tiemann's thugs, now led by Fred Cray, a disgraced former cop, move on the squatters. They started on number 57, smashing in the front door and proceeded to destroy the place, making it uninhabitable. They destroyed wiring and plumbing, broke doors off their hinges, and smashed anything left that remained, and any squatters that were left inside were arrested by police. In fact, 53 squatters would be arrested that day. This continued until eventually they were all evicted. This ended six months of occupation by the squatters. Eventually, the green ban by the BLF would be ceased when the federal leadership of the BLF, with Norm Gallagher, expelled the New South Wales BLF leadership, allegedly after receiving payments from developers. As the green ban was lifted, Juanita was able to get the water board union on her side to stop any water work at the site. So before I get to Juanita... Let me give you a little bit more background on how things were done in Sydney at this time. It was said that New South Wales police were the best money could buy. Politicians were in the pocket of organised crime. It was generally known, but never proven, that this corruption went all the way up to the Premier of New South Wales. Bob Askin, who was Premier between 1965 and 1975, was investigated after his death and it was found that the money he legitimately made throughout his life fell far short of his actual wealth. It was said Askin and Police Commissioner Norman the Foreman Allen were on the payroll of one of the nightclub owners of the time, Abe Saffron, to the tune of $5,000 to $10,000 per week. With the top politician and top cop on your side, you're untouchable. Norman the foreman, was succeeded by Frederick Hansen, who was also in Abe's pocket. So to get a development issue dealt with, there were underworld figures you could go to for muscle and the police that would back them up or turn a blind eye. So let's get back to Juanita Nielsen, 37-year-old publisher of Now magazine and heiress to the Mark Foy's family fortune. She had initially campaigned separately from the Victoria Street Residents Action Group and she was becoming a problem for Frank Tiemann, 
as delays to his development were costing him dearly. So now let's talk about the Carousel Club on the corner of Darlinghurst Road and Rosalind Street. It was owned by Abe Saffron and the club was run by James Anderson. Eddie Trigg was night manager of the VIP lounge. Abe, as I said before, owned quite a few of the nightclubs in the cross. He was allegedly involved in illegal alcohol sales, gambling, stolen goods, prostitution, drugs, bribery and extortion. He was known as Mr Sin or the King of the Cross. Despite these allegations, he would never be convicted of anything and in, until in 1987 where he would be convicted of tax evasion and would serve only 17 months in jail. So we have Juanita campaigning against Tiemann's development. On May 25th, 1975, Tiemann gave James Anderson a $25,000 cheque to supposedly set up his drug-addicted son in a nightclub venture. There's no evidence that this ever happened, and it's alleged that this money was to make Juanita disappear. Eddie Trigg, who had failed in doing a hit for Saffron in Adelaide when the sticks of Jellignite failed to blow up under the target's car, was desperate to restore his reputation. Trigg had tried several times to lure Juanita into situations where she would be abducted, but had failed each time. On June 13, Jim Anderson had invited Juanita to a press night at the club. She declined, as her newspaper did not give free publicity. Anderson and Trigg were furious when she did not attend. A few days later, Juanita was invited to the Camperdown Travel Lodge by the Carousel's PR guy, Lloyd Marshall, to discuss advertising related to landscaping. She was suspicious, and again she refused to attend. On June 30, Trigg and an offsider drove down to her 202 Victoria Street terrace and carrying a pillowcase, knocked on her door with the intention of abducting her. When the door opened, instead of Juanita, it was her long-time friend David Farrell who opened the door. They told him they were wanting to speak with to Juanita, but David told them that she wasn't there and so they left. Trigg at this stage was desperate to get hold of Juanita. On the night of the 3rd of July, Loretta Crawford, the 27-year-old transsexual receptionist at the carousel, called Juanita in regards to buying advertising space in her newspaper for the Carousel nightclub. This was unusual, as nightclubs had never advertised with her before. But as ad revenue was down, she agreed to meet at 10.30 the next morning at the Carousel, a five-minute walk from her house. So it's the 4th of July, 1975. The band Pilot, with their song January was still number one on the top 40 Australian charts seven weeks after knocking Sherbet's Summer Love off the top spot. Billie Jean King defeated Yvonne Goolagong to win the women's Wimbledon 6-love 6-1. At 11am on this 4th of July 1975, Juanita was on her way to the meeting with Eddie Trigg at the Carousel Club. Now, the following information is in a lot of places, but one good site I found was 
milesagogue.com slash features slash nielsen.htm. Before she left for the meeting, she called her friend David Farrell to let him know where she was going. Juanita entered through the Rosalind Street entry and walked up the stairs and was greeted by the receptionist, Loretta Crawford. Crawford offered her a coffee, but before she could drink the coffee, Trigg arrived and they went upstairs to the office. After this meeting, Juanita would never be seen again. When Juanita is reported missing, the police of course interview the staff at the Carousel Club, as it was the last place she was seen. Trigg would tell police that after the meeting, Juanita left the club by herself and that this was backed up by Loretta Crawford. 18 months later, Crawford would change her story and now she was saying that Trigg and Juanita left together. This would not be the last time Crawford would change her story, but more of that later. The carousel's manager, Jim Anderson, told police that he was with his mate at Surface Paradise on July 4th for a few days at the Chevron Hotel, booked in his wife's name. Police would not really check his alibi, other than to note that his car received a couple of parking tickets during this time while parked at Sydney Airport. They didn't even verify that Anderson was on the TAA flight that he said he flew to surfers on. A week later on July 12th, her handbag was found with her personal effects alongside a freeway in Western Sydney, as if thrown from a car. Police searched dams and rivers in the area, but found nothing else, and as they say, the case went cold. Remember, this is 1975, and there are no surveillance cameras for police to examine, no DNA evidence to collect, and so the result of any investigation is really up to how well the police do their job. One of the main theories as to what happened to Anita was that after she met with Trigg at the carousel, she walked down the stairs towards the exit, but before she got to the door, she was grabbed and taken down to the basement. Here she was most likely murdered and her body taken away and disposed of. Reports of her being seen getting into a yellow Mustang after the meeting were later to be proven as false. Even though the case was cold, it never really went away. In 1983, a coronial inquiry with a jury was held. It found that Juanita had probably been killed, although there was not enough evidence to show how she died or who killed her. The inquest did note that police corruption may have crippled the investigation into her death at the time. In 1994, a joint committee of the Commonwealth Parliament of Australia was formed to investigate Juanita's disappearance. It also concluded that corruption impeded the police investigation. Juanita would ultimately be declared as deceased. So who were the main suspects? Frank Tiemann. Although not directly involved in Juanita's disappearance, he did have financial ties to Abe Saffron, who was the owner of the Carousel Club. Juanita's activism was really starting to cost a lot of money in the delays to his development plan. Abe Saffron. He owned the Carousel Club, and the last people to see Juanita was his employees. But what may have been another reason to link him to Juanita's disappearance 
was that Saffron was a big underworld identity. He was known to have loaned vast sums of money to prominent Sydney business identities. There is a theory that Juanita held information about top government and police officials, linking them to organised crime, and that she was about to expose them. This theory makes a lot of sense when you think about it. To have her killed for just one high-rise development is a bit over the top. But if she was about to name some prominent officials, then that would be motive to have her silenced. James Anderson, the manager of the Carousel Club. He reckons he was in surface paradise Queensland at the time. But Loretta Crawford now says that she called him at his home in Vaucluse when Juanita turned up for the meeting on July 4. Vaucluse is about 15 minutes drive from the cross. Surface is about two hours flying time. Then there's Eddie Trigg, the night manager, and barman Shane Martin-Simmons. Well, Trigg was the one she went to meet that day. Trigg had been given the task of tracking Juanita down, and after his failure in the Adelaide bombing incident, he was keen to save face in front of his underworld bosses. His girlfriend, Marilyn King, a transvestite cocktail waitress at the carousel, was at the club that day and initially she would cover for Trigg when interviewed by police. Later in 2004, she would come out with the truth about what went on that day. But I'll get to that later. Former Detective Fred Cray. It was alleged that he was one of the organised heavies that were used to intimidate the residents of Victoria Street. Some say that he was the third man at the Carousel Club and that it was he that killed Juanita. In 1977, more than two years after she disappeared, Eddie Trigg, Shane Martin-Simmons and Lloyd Marshall, the Carousel's PR man, were finally arrested and charged with conspiring to abduct Juanita. Trigg absconded in 1981 while on bail awaiting trial but he was eventually recaptured in the US in 1988 and deported to face trial. He pleaded guilty and was jailed for three years. The second suspect, Shane Martin-Simmons, was convicted in 1981 and was jailed for two years. The third man, Lloyd Marshall, the carousel's PR man, was acquitted. Now let's go all the way forward in time to early 2004. ABC's 7.30 report would interview Loretta and Marilyn. Loretta Crawford, the receptionist at the carousel, and Marilyn King, girlfriend of Eddie Trigg, would finally come out with what they say is the actual truth of what happened that 4th of July at the carousel club. They would both admit that they had covered up what had gone on that day, as they feared for their lives. But now that most of the suspects were dead, they felt safe to reveal the truth. Loretta would say after the meeting, they walked down the stairs. When they were halfway down the stairs that I could see from my office, Eddie came back and said, if anyone asks, sweetheart, I didn't leave with her. She then went towards the doorway to the basement. As I sort of turned to go down the last stairs to the storeroom, she was laying there, and this third person was standing there with a gun in his hand. The bullet wound was only very, very tiny. 
It was like, probably like a cigarette butt, the size of a cigarette butt. And there was like maybe a trickle of blood that I saw. Marilyn King, now known as Monet King, Trigg's transvestite girlfriend at the time, would reveal the following. She said that Eddie told her that she didn't feel a thing. She went on to say, Oh, Eddie, well, where is she? You know, he didn't answer me. Eddie then said, What you don't know won't hurt you. Marilyn then said, Well, what about that blood on your shirt? He took off his shirt to change it, and there was a piece of paper, note paper in the top pocket, and Eddie said, Oh, I'll need that. Give that to me. I'll need to show that to the police. That's my alibi of why I had to see her. It was a receipt for $130 for advertising signed by Juanita. Marilyn then said, Oh look, there's a bit of blood on it. For goodness sake, what on earth's going on? So the piece of notepaper, instead of being the whole piece, was suddenly cut in half and the piece with her signature on was kept and the other bit with the spot of blood on it, like the spot on the, of blood on his shirt, was cast out into the rubbish. Marilyn then said, Well, thank goodness. Is she all right? Where is she? Has she gone home? And he showed me his fist, and it was swollen, dreadfully swollen. And he said, If the police ask, if the police ask what happened, say that I hit you. So, if Loretta and Marilyn are to be believed, Juanita was lured to the carousel club under the pretense of signing up the club for advertising in her newspaper. In reality, Trigg roughed her up and either he or an unnamed third man shot her in the head, killing her. Loretta and Marilyn do, know, do not know what happened to her body and police investigations at the time were cursory at most. In July 2005, New South Wales Police flew Marilyn, who now identifies as a man and calls herself Monet, to Sydney and wired him up to record a reunion with Eddie Trigg. They sat at the bar at the Abbott's Hotel in Waterloo, but despite Monet's prompting, Trigg refused to talk about Nielsen. There are stories out there that she was buried under the third runway of Sydney Airport, always chopped up and dumped at sea. The reality is, we will probably never know. Most of those directly connected or suspected in the disappearance are dead. So that's about it for this episode. The more you look into the case, the more tangents you can follow in regards to corruption and organised crime of the time. Anyway, I hope this has given you a good rundown on one of Australia's most fascinating missing persons case. Now, I'd just like to run a promo for one of my fellow podcasters. Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. So, True Crime Islanders... The lovely Katie has drawn this week's winner of the Slasher T-shirt. And it is a Jonesy 52. So send me your address details and I'll post one out to you. That's cambo at truecrimeisland.com. 
New logo has been launched, and while the website's not updated with the new look yet, it will be soon. Now, this branding is so I can see if anyone is interested in buying some merch down the line. So I needed a better looking logo, of course. Uh, So much thanks to all the Twitter and Facebook followers. Look, your support is what keeps me going. Remember, you can rate and review on iTunes and this helps get the word out there. And of course, there's a chance to win a t-shirt. Now, you've got to remember, don't forget to delete your browser history. This is your host Cambo, signing off from True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. <laughs>